repentance, two steps to salvation, repentance and baptism. So we'll be taking a look at some key understandings around what God wants us to do to be part of his promised kingdom. So those two things, as, as we gain from the title, are repentance and baptism. So in Mark chapter 16, we have recorded what is often referred to, to as the Great Commission. So this is the time when after Jesus' resurrection, uh, in, before he ascended into heaven, that he was having a meal with his apostles and he gave them this charge. So in Matthew, sorry, Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, he said, Jesus said these words. He said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized shall, will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So these words of Jesus, they were in response to the apostles' own lack of belief. You know, when they did not believe those who had seen Jesus with their own eyes. So after Jesus had been resurrected, um, there were some that saw Jesus with their own eyes and says, we've seen Jesus. But a lot of the apostles, they said, they didn't believe those words. And so Jesus was speaking to them directly here in relation to that. So, so now when Jesus rose into heaven, his apostles and the disciples were charged or condemned to continue with his work of preaching the gospel. And that was a work that would be not just to Jerusalem, where they'd been, where Jesus had been preaching. It was preaching the gospel not just in Judea, which was the broader region, and not just to the whole of Palestine or, or the old um, area of the land of Israel, but it was a charge to go and preach to the whole world. Jesus said, go and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And at first, I believe his uh, Jesus' apostles, his apostles would not really have grasped exactly what he was saying to them or what he meant by that. Now, they would have thought, yes, preach the gospel to the whole world or to the whole of creation. But they wouldn't have grasped just what that implied so the gospel would be preached not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Because as we read later, and we won't cover this particularly tonight, but when, uh, uh, when Cornelius was called to the gospel, the, the Roman centurion, it was very hard for the apostles to accept that he would be called to the gospel. In their world, the preaching would have been just to the Jews. So please note the order of what Jesus said to them. He said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Whoever believes and is baptised will be saved. So there are actually three steps to salvation. There are two steps, two things we need to do, and the third step is salvation. So first of all, there's a belief in the gospel. Then secondly, there is baptism. And then following those two, the third step is salvation. Salvation can only come after belief in the gospel and baptism. And that's made quite clear from those words of Jesus and in other places too. And this is the same process that all true believers, you know, for all of us and anyone else who wants to believe in Jesus. It's the same process that all believers 
since the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus have gone through belief in the gospel, baptism, and then salvation. I believe the apostles themselves would have themselves known all too well the importance of belief. Now, after all, you know, Jesus taught them so much during his ministry. You know, all the, all the parables, all these other words of teaching, they learnt a lot, but it was not until the very end, after they had seen him risen, the risen Lord, that they themselves fully believed in the gospel. Prior to that, despite all that knowledge they'd been given, they, they did not believe. And so first of all, it's important that we learn about the gospel by reading the Bible. That's the only way that we can learn about the gospel. You know, the disciples who were following Jesus at that time were in, you know, many senses very fortunate as they were, you know, it's hard for us to think about exactly what it would have been like, but they were able to listen and hear the gospel directly from Jesus with their own ears. Just imagine that being able to hear those marvellous words direct from the lips of Jesus. But of course, today we don't have that luxury, do we? We don't have the luxury of Jesus speaking directly to us. The only direct communication that we have from God from God, is contained in the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God, which is the Bible. And so this is you know, obviously a treasured book that we have because it is God's Word to us. And so this is where we learn about not just the history of the nation of Israel, God, who are God's people, so we learn about those, um, the nation of Israel, but we also learn about, uh, in the Bible, about God's plans for the earth. Now, it's about what he wants to do with the earth, what he desires from those who wish to be part of those plans. So God has a set of things that he wants to do, um, and which he's been bringing about through the years, over the, over the ages, and he also has certain things that he wants believers to do to be part of the, his plans for the earth. And so Paul, who was the great preacher, when he was later writing his letter to the Romans, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. So Paul had been appointed by Jesus, but to go and tell the Gentiles about the wonder and the power of the gospel. Now, Paul originally had been uh, against the Christians, against the gospel, persecuting them, hadn't he? But then Jesus appeared to him on the way to Damascus and converted him. That was Paul's own moment of belief and of uh, turning of repentance to salvation. And Paul had, yeah, Jesus converted him to and appointed him to go and preach to the Gentiles. So here in the Romans, he is testifying of his own first-hand witness and his own first-hand knowledge of the power of the gospel. He'd seen it in operation, operation so many times as he preached throughout the world, the, the world at that time. 
And he also also speaking about how he always, wherever he went, took the gospel first of all to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So why did that happen? Why did he take it first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles? Well, because first of all, the Jews were God's special people, weren't they? But as in so many cases, the of the Jews could not get past their idea of what or who the Messiah should be. So when Paul was preaching to them, they could not believe. They could not get away from their own understanding of the Messiah. And so following belief, the next step then is to, is to signify our beliefs by being baptised. So what does, what does being baptised mean? Well, if you think about it, when we believe something, that whole process happens inside our own heads. It happens in here. <laughs> it's not something that happens externally. It's, you know, not like a wound where, you know, something, the force acts on us and it's a very visible thing that happens. But it's happened, something that happens inside our own heads. It's something that we decide, a change of mind. Now, and after that, we can, we can, of course, then obviously tell someone else of our, of our beliefs, what we now believe, and that person can and likely will acknowledge our belief. But how then does that person truly know that you have that belief or that you may have changed your beliefs? You know, it's quite possible that you could actually form a certain belief whether it's in the gospel or something else, but and run around for years with that belief just sitting in your head. And no one would actually know about it. They wouldn't know about it if you never acted on that belief. And so in the case of the gospel, the demonstration of our belief in the gospel comes through baptism. Now, Jesus said to his apostles, believe and be baptised. They were to preach to people so that they could believe and be baptised. So the instruction here is very clear, isn't it? If you believe the gospel, then you'll follow Jesus' instruction and be baptised. That's pretty clear to me. So in Acts chapter 37... Philip, in, on, in that chapter, was preached, sorry, Acts chapter 8, verse 37, Philip was preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch. And as he was preaching, the eunuch asked, asked Philip if he could be baptised. So then on this occasion, Philip's words then make it clear that baptism could only be administered after belief. Philip said to him, if you believe with all your heart, you may as in other words, you may be baptised. So the eunuch had to believe with all his heart. And Philip said, if you do, do, do that, then you can be baptised. And then so the eunuch replied to Philip, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So there was his confession of his belief in Jesus Christ. And then so what happened that next was that the chariot was stopped that they were sitting in and they found some water by the side of the road 
and Philip baptized him. So the next stage of salvation is one which can potentially then take a significant amount of time. All, all those many individuals that we have in the Bible record, you know, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you know, for them, salvation, the process of salvation is a time span consisting of thousands of years. There's others where it would be in a, pro a period of hundreds of years because God has a plan which spans over thousands of years with an end point in mind. But then for each of us individually, and it would have been the same for those, those people in the Bible, it's the time of until the day of our death. Salvation comes when we die. Or as us, those of us here today would dearly hope, it's the time until the return of Jesus to the earth, hopefully within our own lifetimes. I'm sure all of us do hope that it will, you know, it comes much, much sooner rather than later. So what then is that salvation? Again, the salvation is contained within the gospel message. It's the kingdom of God. And the, the salvation, this salvation is embodied and declared by the Lord Jesus in his own life. Let's turn to, um, to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2 is a passage where we are warned about neglecting salvation. So Hebrews 2, reading from verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So what is it that we've heard? Well, we've heard the gospel, haven't we? For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, that is the, the great salvation, was declared at first by the Lord Jesus. And it was attested to us by those who heard. So first of all, Jesus declared it in his, um, in his life and also in his death and in his resurrection. And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So there's very supporting um, evidence, I guess, if you like, of, of the gospel and of, of the salvation that would come in the form of those miracles. But I think the, the power here is, is Jesus himself who declared it in his own death and resurrection. This is the salvation that we can escape our mortal bodies and be resurrected into glory, which is what Jesus has done for us already. So at this stage, you might be wondering what, well, just what exactly is the gospel? The gospel in its basic meaning means good news, simply that. That's what the, 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 the Greek word means, good news. But that really doesn't really tell us a whole lot, does it? 
doesn't explain anything about what we've just been talking about. So what is then the good news or the gospel? Well, the good news is really, it is good news because it gives us a lot of hope. Let's have a look at Acts chapter 8. So in Acts chapter 8, um, the disciples at this point had been scattered out of Jerusalem. So prior to Acts chapter 8, they were basically preaching in Jerusalem. And at this point, they've been scattered out of Jerusalem due to persecution, a lot of that persecution having come at the hands of Saul or Paul. And, uh, and Philip was there in Samaria preaching. So in, verse, in, in Acts chapter 8 and in verse 4, we read there that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So Philip wasn't the only one, but all those who were scattered were there doing what Jesus had commanded them to. They were there preaching the word or preaching the gospel. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So he was proclaiming things about Jesus. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So um, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So again, there are miracles accompanying this preaching. So there was much joy in that city. So you can see here the power of the gospel in that many, many were healed. Um, there was lots of joy. People believed. Um, and it was, yeah, it was very, very um, powerful time. But then in verse 9, there was um, a man, Simon the magician, who appeared, who had previously practiced magic in the city. Uh, and had amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So he was, he was producing this false, um, uh, false reality of, of, being, um, of, of miracles. He was producing magic. And so then in verse 12, when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised both men and women. So all these people, they turned from this man, Simon, saw the power of the gospel, that it was much, much greater, and believed and were baptised both men and women. But even Simon himself, as you read in verse 13, was um, he believed and after being baptised, he continued with Philip. But the key here is what, what was Philip preaching about? In verse 12, he was preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So there we have the, I suppose, the definition of the gospel. There's the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Two, two different parts, one part being the kingdom, the kingdom of God, one, the other part being the name of Jesus Christ. And then at the end of the chapter, in verse 40, as he, um, after he'd spoken to the eunuch, we find that Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So I think we can comfortably say from those verses that 
what Paul was preaching, sorry, Philip was preaching was the gospel, which was the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. So there we have it. That's what the gospel is. And Paul again wrote about receiving the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So let's turn there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes to us in verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So what did Paul receive? Well, he received the gospel, didn't he? And he received that direct from Jesus Christ. But what was it that he received? He, he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Um, and then he appeared to quite a few more people. And then last of all, as he says in verse 8, last of all, he appeared to me. And so that's some of the key parts of the gospel too, aren't they? That, that Those elements there, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And that's an important part of it, we'll see in a minute. He died in accordance with the scriptures. And then that he appeared again, he was raised on the third day. In accordance, also in accordance with the scriptures. So this definition that we talked about of the gospel being the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, that's the, the narrowest um, definition of the gospel. So you might be thinking, well, if that's all I have to believe in, that's not too hard to do. You know, name, name of Jesus Christ, the gospel, that's not too much to learn or to take in. But let's consider for a moment what exactly is the kingdom of God and what is the name of Jesus Christ? Well, in the Bible, the name of a person is tied up in who that person actually is. It's tied up in their character or what they stand for. It's tied up in their purpose in what they achieve. And so for Jesus, it's not just about the name Jesus or even the, being the Messiah. The name of the person is much, much greater than that. And so if we are to fully understand the breadth of just who Jesus is and what he accomplished, you know, just what he stands for, if we, if we are to fully understand what the kingdom of God is and, and how it came about, then what we need to do is read the whole Bible. It takes reading the whole of the Bible to, to fully understand who Jesus is, what he stands for, what he accomplished. As we read there um, in, in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. It's the Old Testament which reveals to us those things that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It's the Old Testament that tells us about his death and his burial and his resurrection. So if we don't read it, we don't know the full gospel. It's as simple as that. So in other words, we can say that the whole, the whole of the Bible is tied up in understanding the gospel because then in the New Testament, then we have the, um, the greater explanation of the gospel and how it played out in converting people 
it's a filling out of the words of the gospel in all the letters and the, the other books of the New Testament. So, so far we've talked about belief, we've talked about baptism, we've talked about salvation, and we've talked about the gospel. So one thing we haven't quite got to yet is the other part of our title for this evening, which is repentance. So how does repentance fit in? That's the part we haven't yet covered, isn't it? So I started looking at some passages out of Acts of the Apostles, and that's uh, the reading we had from Acts chapter 2 earlier on. So the Acts of the Apostles is a book then which follows on from the gospel records, the gospel of Mark, Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John. So they're obviously books that are all about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the core of the gospel. But the Acts then is a book which shows then how the apostles following those that gospel, following the ascension of Jesus, uh, went about their work of preaching, preaching the gospel and then converting men and women to a belief in Jesus. Now, so what we see in Acts is that the apostles, the disciples, were doing precisely as Jesus had commanded them. They were going about preaching and then baptising those who did believe in what they said. <clears throat> and so then Acts chapter 2, the chapter that we had read this evening, that occurs on the day of Pentecost. This is a time when it's, which is not long after the um, after Jesus had gone up into heaven. And we saw in the first few verses, we saw how that all, as the, all the apostles were gathered together, they all received the Holy Spirit and began talking in tongues. And so in verse 2, it says that suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a, a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak it in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So it was the effect, the act of the Holy Spirit on them, which, um, which caused them to speak in different languages. And the, the fire there was used as a demonstration of the, um, a visible demonstration of the Holy Spirit being given to the apostles. And so, um, so yes, as we said, they all started talking in tongues so that this, at the time of Pentecost, it was a time of feasting. And so a lot of people came from all over the world uh, to Jerusalem, from all different countries and regions uh, to celebrate this, this great feast. <laughs> so as it says, we had um, you know, people from you know, Parthia, from Mede, from, there were Elamites and people from Mesopotamia, from all over, all over the place, all speaking all different kinds of languages. But the amazing thing was that each of them heard these apostles um, speaking in their own language. Now, it's hard to imagine really what it would have been like because, um, you know, in a big crowd, it's hard to even just speaking one language to make um, to make someone out, isn't it, often? So to be able to just hear someone speak directly to you in your own language would have been quite amazing with all the sorts of no other noise going on around you as well. And so it was such an amazing occurrence that the apostles were accused of being drunk in the morning. You know, that's not something that was not done in those times. 
And so we ended up that Peter got up um, in front of the crowd and spoke to them. And we won't actually go through the, his, whole, his whole speech there, but he basically goes through and, and tells them about Jesus being the Messiah. So effectively, he was, he was preaching to them. He was preaching the gospel to this crowd. And so there was a certain result that occurred from his speech, from his words. So all this crowd was there. They were listening, listening to the gospel being preached, and there was a result. And this is in verse 37. Because Peter finished with these, um, with these words, let all the house of Israel, in verse 36, he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter was making it very loud and clear that the Jews had given up Jesus to be crucified, which is what, what did happen. And so the response was in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. They, you know, they'd heard Peter's words, and it had an effect on them. They now believed. They were cut, and so they were cut to the heart, realizing what they had done to Jesus. And so they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "Brothers, what shall we do?" You can imagine they're just almost, maybe almost weeping because of what they'd done and now saying, asking, well, what can we do? So these people are having heard the gospel now believed and they recognized that something more was necessary. They couldn't just leave it at that. They had to do something else. And so what was Peter's response? Well, in verse 38, he says, Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Because our sins are a barrier to our salvation, and they need to be forgiven before eternal life can be bestowed on us by God. But here we see the action was to, for them to repent. So what is repentance? Well, repentance is a process of turning away. It's kind of like turning a new leaf. It's recognising that what you've been doing is, is wrong. And you turn away from that to something else. So here, though, um, Peter is telling them to turn away from the way you've been thinking, the way you're following with the, with the law of Moses, with all these rituals which are now dead and no longer in effect and turn to Jesus to follow him. And so for us, it's a turning away from our life, isn't it? A life of sin, the life in service is sin, and turning instead towards a life in Christ, a life of righteousness. So what does baptism actually mean when we talk about baptism? So baptism is the old, then is the method appointed by God for the initial removal of sins. And this is achieved by a you know, believer, you know, for ourselves, submitting to baptism. Um, in Acts 22, um, Paul says, Arise and be baptised and wash away your sins. That was the action, to be baptised and to wash away your sins. That's what baptism does. It washes away 
the sins of the of someone who believes. And so then a key part of our repentance of that turning over a new leaf or turning away from sin is is then that we acknowledge, first of all, the need for our past sins to be removed. We can't progress if we don't recognise that, don't acknowledge that. We acknowledge that our sins need to be removed and then that is then followed by a completely different way of life. It's like doing what if you're walking down a, a street you come to a blockage and you go, you re- or you recognise that you're going the wrong way, it's the wrong street. What do you do? You turn around and head back the way you've come. It's a complete 180. And that's what re- repentance is. It's a complete 180 in what we're doing. So sins are washed away by baptism. And then when we are baptised, we are encouraged to follow Christ's way. We're commanded to follow Christ's way, the way of life. And so this change of direction, this change of attitude that we have to have is there implicit in the very meaning of the word baptise. The word baptise has come directly from from the Greek into our English language. So the Greek word is, as you see on the screen there, baptizo or baptizo, uh, depending on whether you're a Greek speaker or not. And this word literally means to dip or to plunge. And outside of the scriptural use, it was used specifically by the dying trade. So the, um, in those times, there were uh, tradesmen who dyed cloth. And when they dyed the cloth, they had a big bucket of the dye, uh, which was usually from natural sources, and they immersed the cloth completely in that dye. So imagine if you had a you know, piece of nice fresh linen cloth Bright, nice and bright and white, and you wanted to turn it all red. Um, you dip it in the dye and pull it out again. What happens if you don't dip it all in? Well, some of the cloth is going to still be white, isn't it? So baptism or this plunging, baptizo, means to immerse completely because if you don't put it all under, you're not all going to be changed. That piece of cloth is not all going to be changed in its colour. And so baptism is very similar. We, the baptism for a believer is a baptism in water. It follows the same process of complete immersion in water. And so every time we find the word baptism or baptize mentioned in the Bible, it does refer to this complete burial in water. So it involves the believer being completely submerged below the water um, in this ritual process. And it's done to show his completely changed attitude of mind, that he has done a 180 reversal. And so then if you think about this form of baptism, which this burial in water is also a representation of death and resurrection. So when you go into the, into the water, that's a representation of, the, of death and when you come up out of the water, that's a representation of resurrection. And that's what put the Apostle Paul taught um, as well. He taught about the association of baptism with death, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, so for him, it was a recognition by a believer 
of his own association with Jesus' death and resurrection. And remember then, it was only through that way that baptism became possible. So in Romans 6 and verse 3, we read there that Paul says to us, do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? So he's telling us directly there that when we're baptised, we are baptised into his death. And so this burial, this burial then symbolises the death of the old man of the flesh. So who we are before we be baptised was a sinful person, an old man of the flesh. And that is what is, is, um, is that is what dies when we are baptised. So in Romans 6 verse 6 it says, Our old man is crucified with him, that is with Jesus, that the body of sin may be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So this is still the first half of the process, the crucifixion of our old body in alignment with Jesus' crucifixion. So that following that, we would not serve sin. So that idea is that following that, this man of, of sin, this man of death has been put away and then when we come up out of the water, we resurrected to a new man. So the coming up out of the water represents resurrection or the beginning of a new life in Christ. So it's like we've taken off one body and put a new one on. You know, so then if as a baptised believer, we will have repented of our sins. And then with our past sins having been washed away in baptism, we rise to a newness of life. Which is uh, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. And so then by this means, we are what's called or what's termed born again. And we truly become a believer in Jesus. We become a Christian. And Jesus actually talks about being born again in John chapter 3. So John chapter 3 and verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? So Nicodemus was thinking about natural birth. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Of course not. We can't do that, can we? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So unless we're baptized, unless we're born of water, and of the spirit, he cannot enter the, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, as he says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So when we born, have a natural birth, we're just flesh. We, that's our natural body. It's not until we're born of the spirit through baptism that we are spirit, that we're part of, part of, the, um, part of God's purpose. So by the process of baptism, we have this opportunity then, don't we, to change completely, to completely change our attitude of mind and then strive after that to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Now we have this opportunity to change completely our direction. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 
So 1 Peter 2 and verse 21, for to this you have been called. This is the calling of the gospel, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow, follow his steps. We have been called then to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Um, and we've given some examples there. He, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting him, himself to him who judges justly. So there are some examples, some practical examples of how we can follow in Jesus' steps. And then we read in Colossians chapter 3, um, these words from Colossians 3 and verses 1 to 3. Paul says to us, if you then be risen with Christ, and of course that's in baptism, then seek those things which are above. So if we have been baptised, then we are to follow the way of Christ, which is above the spiritual things. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead in baptism, and your life is hid with Christ in God. So again, Paul is showing to us that there needs to be this change of attitude, a change of mind, thinking about heavenly things rather than about earthly things, because that old man of sin has been done away with in baptism. And so then following baptism, our lives should be guided by the knowledge that we will be subject to the judgment of Jesus when he returns from heaven to set up at the kingdom of God on the earth. Now, this is the time when if we are received favorably by the Lord, we will experience a change of nature. Now, Paul says to us again in Philippians chapter 3, in verse 20, he says, We look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. So that's part of the hope of the gospel that we look for, that our body will be changed, a ch complete change of nature. So not just our minds change now, but our bodies will also be changed or transformed into something new. And again in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. So when Christ Jesus returns, then we will appear with him in glory. We're certainly not glorious now, are we? So there's the transformation that's got to occur. And in this, then in this privileged condition that we'll have as, as in gloriousness with Jesus, we, we as believers will also be kings and priests to reign on the earth, as we're told in Revelation. Now, we will be there with Christ to, hope, to help those of mankind that are left on the earth to turn from the evils that are associated with this present world, turn away from the sinful things, turn away from the things which have no value to eternal life and look towards the beauty and the blessings which are associated with the laws and the things of God. So that's part of the great hope that we have to be with Jesus doing those things. And so if we do faithfully obey the commands of Jesus, then if we do die, our death is no barrier to the hope of the kingdom. Like I mentioned before, all those people mentioned in the Bible that we have gone before us for them they're just waiting in the grave for for the kingdom to come they'll be there in the kingdom 
their death is no barrier to being there. So, so God has promised to raise from the dead all those who put their trust in him, and they will be granted the gift of eternal life in the kingdom. And the resurrection of Christ has guaranteed that for us. The fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead is the guarantee that they and us will also be raised. So as we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. He's the first fruits, he's the first one to rise from the dead. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ's, through baptism at his coming. And so we hope that all of us here tonight can be there with us, with Christ, in that glorious kingdom that has been promised to all who believe and are baptised.